Good evening, viewers. The views, information, or opinions expressed on Myths and Misconceptions podcast are solely those of the individual guests and may not be representative of the show as a whole. Myths and Misconceptions is intended for mature audiences and will discuss topics such as murder, rape, torture, and suicide. If you or anyone you know are having suicidal ideations, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-237-8255. Someone will be there to talk to you. You are not alone. Now, on to today's episode. Viewer discretion is advised. You and a group of four friends are huddled around a tiny campfire, the bitter cold cutting through you like a knife. You can see your breath each time you exhale, and the cold air hurts your lungs each time you draw in a breath. While watching the fire dance, you can't help but remember the park ranger's last words to you, telling you not to go up the mountain today. A storm is rolling in. But that if you did, to be back before nightfall, or you'll be stuck up there until spring. You laughed it off and headed up the mountain, but thanks to the expert navigator's directions, you and your friends get off the beaten path and quickly become lost. Nightfall came quickly, as did the snow, and everyone decided to wait out the storm. Your group picks out a spot and starts to build a fire, hoping that help will come quickly. You realize that the meager rations you brought for a weekend hiking trip will only last you until the end of the week, if you're careful. The snow flurries in, the wind ripping through your coat. You spend the time huddled together and try to keep the fire going. You shiver through the first night as the waiting turns from hours to days, then to a week. You check your bag and realize that your rations have been exhausted. You and your friends try to hunt for food, but you catch nothing. You're not exactly the hunting type, after all, you're from the suburbs. The most hunting you've done is sneak killing zombies on Xbox. Besides your small pocket knives and a hatchet, you can't take out big game and you don't know how to set traps for small game. Your body is screaming for nutrients. Your group hasn't eaten in days or maybe a week. You're not quite sure the days have been blending together the bitter cold continues to cut through you. You haven't felt warmth in forever. Your clothes have begun to hang off your emaciated frame, allowing the wind to wrap around your skin. 
and suddenly, one of your friends stumbles and falls to the ground. You quickly rush over to see what's the matter. You shake him, check his pulse, and try CPR, but to no avail. Your friend has succumbed to hunger and the elements. You suggest that we give him a proper burial, but one person in your party has a different idea. A taboo and macabre idea. An idea so dark that it takes you a moment to realize what you have heard him suggest. That you eat him. You put up a fight. People don't eat people. What will we tell the authorities? What will we tell his family? But the growling of your stomach says otherwise. You protest again, but one of your friends has already gone off to find firewood. You watch as another begins to undress him and using the hatchet to cleave off his limbs. You're handed a cup of thick red liquid. Steam flows upward as the hot blood contacts the air. The fire roars and your dead friend's leg is now roasting. The smell is something familiar, like sizzling pork. The next thing you know, you're looking down at a steaming piece of cooked meat. You stare at the hunk of meat, disgusted at the thought of eating it. You went to school with him. His friends are friends with yours. You went to school with him. His kids are friends with yours. But before you could think about what you're doing, your body takes complete control and you feel your teeth sink into flesh. The warmth of the meat radiates throughout your body. Your stomach screams for more. You take a drink of the blood. So warm, slightly metallic, but all very satisfying. You devour your meal and go back for more until the four of you have picked the bones clean. Each one of you takes an article of clothing and settles down for the night. Resting assured that you now have the strength to wait for help. But that night, you toss and you turn. Visions of your friend dances in your mind. Something is, something is chasing him. You see the warmth of his breath rapidly inhaling and exhaling as a large, pale figure gives chase behind him. The pale figure pounces on his back and rips into him. Crimson blood flows on the porcelain white snow. You run toward the figure, trying to help your friend. The pale figure turns its head slowly towards you and lets out a blood-curdling scream. You freeze in place as it turns its body and runs towards you. It pounces on you. You try to fight it off. It pins your head to the ground and right before it goes for the kill, it looks you in the eyes. 
the face you see is familiar, a face you've seen many times, because it's yours. The shock wakes you in a cold sweat and you sit up from a dead sleep. With the warm morning light hitting your body, the realization of what you have done settles on you. The four of you create a story in which your friend walked off to get help and you haven't seen him since. You look at your hands, they're pale and gaunt. They look a pasty pale white, it's almost waxy looking. Is this from the cold? Did they look like this before? You ask yourself, but your brain is in a fog. The only thought in your mind is hunger. Your stomach is growling and gnawing. The feeling of every pang washes over you. You need to eat. The growling of your stomach permeates your mind. The only thing on your mind is food. You want more. More food. More flesh? You look around your camp, looking at your friends intently, your head pounding and your stomach screaming for more. You stare at them like a predator stares down its prey, focused, determined, hungry. After what feels like an eternity, you spring into action. You grab a hatchet, lifting it over your head and dropping it into the skull of your nearest friend. Blood spurts around you and the sound of wet bones snapping echoes into the air. You remove the axe and plunge a pale hand into the cavity, pulling out bits of brain. Your cold hand steaming in the bitter frozen air. Devouring what's in your hand, you reach for a second helping. The feeling as it slides down your throat throws you into ecstasy. Blood flowing over your cheeks and down your neck. You laugh and reach for more. The other two scramble to their feet and begin to run. You quickly twist your neck in their direction. Their muscles far too tired to attempt an escape. You twist your body into an ungodly position. You hear bones cracking as your body begins to contort. As the pair are running, one falls to the ground. You run after, pouncing on their back, snapping their neck. You look around for your last friend and find them running through the forest. Looking up, you let out a blood-curdling scream. You bound after him, running more like a dog than a person. You knock him to the ground. He rolls over onto his back, waving his arms to try to protect himself. You place a hand on his head, your fingernails now long and black, pinning him to the ground. Your other hand pins down an arm. You lunge toward his exposed neck, ripping out a chunk of throat. You gulp it down that feeling of ecstasy returning. You begin dragging him back to the makeshift campsite. Months pass and the snow begins to melt. 
Spring has finally arrived. Ripping a chunk of meat from a deer carcass, your head snaps from side to side. You hear the familiar sound of human voices. You slink out of your cave and take refuge in a large bush just off the hiking path. A couple have made their way up the mountain and stumble upon your campsite. One of them notices something in the bushes. A woman nudges her husband. Look, honey, a deer. I think it's a buck. As she points to the antlers, the woman brings her phone up. She's about to take a picture when she notices a pair of red eyes peering back at her. The husband grabs her shoulder to try to pull her back, but it's too late. You lunge at them, your deerskin cloak flapping in the wind. You knock the man to the ground, pinning his arms and legs, your stomach growling and your head pounding, blood boiling. You rip a chunk out of his chest, the blood flowing and mixing with the dirt on the ground. The wife tries to run away, but you grab her by the hair and smash her face into a nearby tree. You've collected your bounty. A trail of blood follows you as you head back to your dark, musty cave. In this episode of Myths and Misconceptions, we'll be diving into the Native American folklore surrounding the Wendigo. To the Algonquin, Eastern Cree, Salute, West Main Swampy Cree, the Nascapi, the Innu, and even the Norse and Europeans, the Wendigo is as real as the changing of the seasons. It's known to many tribes by many different names, such as the Wittigo, the Wittigo, or the Wittigo, but they all roughly translate to the same, the evil spirit that devours mankind. The name Wendigo was first translated by a German explorer around 1860 to mean cannibal among the tribes of the Great Lakes. The Wendigo is known to roam the Great Plains of the United States, the Great Lakes region of the U.S. and Canada, Central Canada, but has also been seen as far west as Washington State. They prefer to live in heavily forested areas where it is easier to find cover and stalk its prey. But what is a Wendigo? A Wendigo is a malevolent being with the characteristics of a person whose spirit has been corrupted either by greed, the use of magic, or the insatiable lust for human flesh. Basil Johnston, one of the foremost indigenous authors in Canada, and a lecturer at the Royal Ontario Museum once noted the Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its complexion was the ash gray of death and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. 
What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Its body was unclean and suffering from separations of flesh, giving off a strange and eerie odor of decay, decomposition, and of death and corruption. An Algonquin legend states that the Wendigo is a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it's thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed, with missing lips and toes. A large creature, as tall as a tree, with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood. And it ate many a man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes, the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. All of the tribes have basic commonalities or things that they share about the Wendigo, being a malevolent, supernatural, and cannibalistic being. They also share that the Wendigo is strongly associated with winter, starvation, and famine. But how does a Wendigo come into existence? According to the lore of Native American tribes, a Wendigo can be created through the use of black magic, like a shaman cursing someone due to their greed. A concept that can be more of a metaphor by putting your wants and needs above those of your family or your tribe. If you elevate your carnal desires above all else, you open yourself up to allowing the evil spirit of the Wendigo to enter your body. And that evil spirit slowly eats away at your soul and your humanity until it has completely consumed you, creating an empty husk of a person living only to fill the void left within him. However, more traditional stories see that a Wendigo is created after a person commits one of the biggest taboos of all. Cannibalism. In Native American lore, this usually happens when a group of hunters go into the mountains to gather food for winter, and the group gets snowed in. After the group begins to deteriorate from starvation and exposure to the elements, one or more of the men are driven into madness and become so desperate that they kill and eat the flesh of the hunting party. After consuming the human flesh, this person has an insatiable craving and will stop at nothing to consume the flesh of his tribe. He has lost all his humanity and can only think of the hunger. This causes a transformation to occur where the cannibal's skin turns either a waxy yellow or a pale snow white the gums shrivel and recede, revealing long, blood-stained teeth that protrude from the mouth, and the skin around his eyes darken and sink into the sockets. The Wendigo will try to cling on to the last bit of its humanity for a while. When it makes it off the mountain and back to his tribe, they try to make him better by offering him food and shelter. But a Wendigo will normally refuse their help and give in to the madness and hunger slaughtering the entire village. He'll feast 
until the village is reduced to nothing more than a pile of bones. And then the Wendigo is forced to wander the forest and plains alone, searching for more food. The lore says that Wendigos gain certain powers after consuming human flesh, multiplied after eating another person. A Wendigo is extremely strong and very quick. They can normally mimic a person's voice after hearing it, and a Wendigo will use this ability to lure people into the forest and devour unsuspecting victims. Becoming a Wendigo may not only reveal itself physically, but also perhaps mentally. An unofficial diagnosis called the Wendigo psychosis may contribute to a lot of the stories of Wendigos. Wendigo psychosis is a culture-bound disorder where those afflicted have an intense craving for human flesh, even when other food sources are readily available. They also exhibit extreme violence and tend to attack at a moment's notice. Many have hypothesized that the infamous Donner Party may have all suffered from Wendigo psychosis. You see, the Donner Party were a group of pioneers that set out from Springfield, Illinois on April 14, 1846 on a wagon train headed for the more fertile farmlands of California. The group made their way to Fort Laramie, Wyoming, where there was a divide on which way they should proceed. A majority of the wagon party traveled north using the Oregon Trail to continue their westward journey. The Donner Reed party, however, opted to head south to use a shortcut suggested by Lansford Hastings. This shortcut would have them cut the Sierra Nevada mountain range, saving them 300 miles to continue the journey west. After multiple people begging them not to go that direction, the party set out with 87 people, 29 men, 15 women, and 43 children. The journey was going smoothly until August, when they entered the Great Salt Lake Desert. They lost many heads of cattle and had to abandon some of their wagons. But the biggest asset they lost was time, because they had to break a lot of new trails. Weeks were added to their travel time, and by the time they crossed the desert, it was nearly November. They began to trek across the Sierra Nevada mountain range with very low provisions, and eight days of continuous snow caused them to build crude cabins out of their wagons to try and wait out the winter. During this extraordinarily harsh winter, the small amount of cattle that they had managed to get across the desert had either wandered away or were eaten and soon the pioneers' provisions were dwindling down to nothing. As people started dying, the survivors had to make the tough decisions on whether to eat their dead companions. The settlers of California organized a rescue party on the 31st of January, 1847, and reached a makeshift camp on February 18th. One of the most infamous stories of Wendigo psychosis comes to us by a Cree by the name of Swift Runner. Born in Alberta as Kaki C. Kuchkin, Swift Runner 
was popular in the Cree community. He was a father of six and made his living as a trapper and a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. Unfortunately, at some point in his life, Swift Runner lost his ability to hunt and take care of his family and fell into alcoholism. That's when he began to get into trouble. He was fired by the Northwest Mounted Police and then he was kicked out of his tribe due to violent outbursts. Then, in the winter of 1878, Swift Runner took his family, his wife, six children, his mother-in-law and brother out into the forest. As spring came back round, Swift Runner staggered out of the woods and into a nearby Catholic church. When the priest asked what was wrong, Swift Runner said his entire family had been murdered. During the winter, he hadn't been able to find any food. Swift Runner said his entire family was dead. He and his family began to starve to death. To the priests, Swift Runner looked very healthy and asked why he hadn't come to the starvation as well. They knew quite a few other Cree in the area who'd had a successful winter. The priests were also disturbed by Swift Runner's constant nightmares. He'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming at the top of his lungs, but it was only when he tried to lure a group of children into the woods that the priests had to act. They were convinced that Swift Runner had killed his family, so they went to the police. While Swift Runner was under arrest, the police had him take them to his winter campsite. Due to some conflicting reports of what had happened, there are some inconsistencies with this part of the story. Some say that Swift Runner immediately took them to the campsite. Others say he intentionally tried to take them off track, only cooperating after he was given alcohol. Either way, the group eventually stumbled upon the campsite and they found a truly horrifying scene. The bones of Swift Runner's family were everywhere. Some broken in half and hollowed out, but the marrow sucked out. In the hearth, they found a pot full of human fat. According to Swift Runner, he'd been possessed by a Wendigo. He had murdered and eaten the remains of his family to satisfy his never-ending hunger. When Swift Runner went to trial in 1879, it only took 20 minutes of deliberation before the jury sentenced Swift Runner to death. Swift Runner was executed on December 20th of 1879, making him the first man legally hanged in Alberta, Canada. This brings us to the end of our episode. What do you believe? Is the Wendigo a physical being prowling the forests of the north or the plains of the Midwest? Or do you believe it's more of a cautionary tale? The dangers of breaking and giving into the ultimate taboo. And as always, viewers, we'll see you on the next episode.